Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by our new Deputy Companies Editor, Alex Newman. How are you, Alex? I'm okay, John. How are you doing? Good. Congratulations on your promotion. Thank you very much. Uh, and Jonas Crossland, our uh, property guru. How are you, Jonas? Very well today, thanks. And uh, you've written the cover feature this week, which is essentially an update on a feature you wrote about two years ago. About property, two years ago, yeah. The property forecast. We've, yeah. Uh, We've updated that to have a look at the outlook for the commercial real estate sector. In fact, not just commercial, some resi as well, yep. but with a commercial angle for 2018 and uh, and onwards from there. Funny enough, it's very convenient that we have you both in the room because every week on our seven days page, we have a little uh, bit of page furniture, good week four and bad week four. And the good week this week is Faro mm-hmm. Petroleum, which you wrote about, Alex. Yep. And uh, the bad week was Galliford Try. Which, which you covered in the results, Jonas. Let's start with Faro. Good news first. Let's start with the good news. What's been going on at Faro? So Faro Petroleum, which is a North Sea-focused uh, mid-tier explorer and producer, had a couple of announcements this, this week. The, the first was the sale, quite a canny uh, bit of deal-making, the sale of 17.5% of a uh, stake in an oil field uh, in the North Sea. They've sold that at uh, what is quite a premium to the carrying value that uh, was both on their balance sheet and also that analysts uh, had it es- estimated at. So the shares reacted quite well to that. I think uh, uh, the shares jumped by about 7.5p on the day. They you know, they suffered last week when we had the broad sell-off in equities and also a bit of a rout in the oil price. So uh, that was a good recovery for uh, what remains really has been one of the best performing shares in the space in the last couple of years. Uh, it's just another instance of Ferro Petroleum just managing their portfolio very well. They never took on an enormous amount of debt like a couple, a couple of their peers. And, you know, this is just a, a, a sort of canny bit of um, horse trading, really, where they've made to, but they've they've been able to, to book quite a big profit. And presumably it's a vindication of some of the things we, we may have tipped it for in the first place, some of the characteristics of this, this company. Yeah, I think one of the really important things this company is, is management, really, and their attitudes towards just managing the managing the asset base, not getting overexposed in one area, having quite a wide portfolio of uh, producing and exploration targets uh, means they're not been overexposed in any one area. They've got a big stake and presence in Norway, which is very favourable fiscal terms for drillers there still, despite Norway's gradual uh, pivot away from uh, oil and gas. You know, we've retired the tip. It's been about two years in the making, we've retired the tip this week. Ninety percent guy, eighty-nine percent. Yeah, I mean it's, it's traded higher higher than this, and we have uh, we've we've kept it on a buy at higher levels than this. But um, we just just felt that the um, catalyst this year may have uh, has subsided a, a little bit, but uh, still a quality stock if you, if you have it in your portfolio. Well, what, what, you said sell. Yes, yeah, but you know, I mean, not everyone's necessarily going to take up our That's advice true. on on every. Uh, Recommendation. I mean, while we're talking about oil, uh, there is a little piece in Seven Days uh, talking about uh, US oil production and yeah. surging production. What is it? I mean, the oil price has presumably been a catalyst that has been helpful for Pharaoh. Yeah. What does this mean for the oil price? Is this one of the catalysts that's sort of uh, less strong than it was? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the, that is the hundred billion dollar question uh, for oil markets. Really, it's how quickly um, can uh, US onshore shale producers get back to the wellhead and start producing uh, oil. The IEA report this uh, this week suggested that they're doing it a bit quicker than, than expected. That's bearish potentially for the oil price because it means that supply could return and that whatever OPEC does to hold back the huge surpluses we've seen in the, in the last few years may be uh, completely undone. So um, 
So yeah, I mean, it's uh, the, the jury is still out whether they'll you know these these uh, shale producers will exercise a bit more caution this this time round uh, remains to be seen. But you know they're enormously well supported by U.S. capital markets. You know, and technology has improved in the last couple of years. So uh, the fact that they're producing more than people expected could be a, a negative for, for oil prices this year. Okay, and I, know, I noticed on our rise and fallers, which we have on the same page, you've got you've got three three oil related stocks that are in the faller section: Petrofac, Nostrum, and Soka. They might be company specific reasons, yeah. but uh... yeah, so Soka and Nostrum have been perennial underperformers. Nostrum, I'd be quite worried really in recent weeks that their their expectation setting has been has been quite poor in the last year and they had this enormous gas plant that was meant to come on come online last year because of uh they, they missed a deadline there and it gets so cold well where the, the gas plant is meant to be that they basically had to say well we can't do anything until after after the snows thawed so um that's that's enormous pushback and they they're now potentially running into certain uh debt issues Company specific, country, yeah. Country is this country specific. Com- country, uh, com- country, or company, country and company specific. Yes, well, well, yeah. Uh, Weather wise, it is a, a, com- a country specific issue, but uh, company specific uh, debt issues there as well. Uh, Petrofac, me, very, very volatile share, and um, moves around a lot on. Uh, on the ongoing SFO investigation, yeah. which we've talked a lot about a lot in, before. Indeed we have. And, uh, well, I, I presume you'll be rounding some of this up in the first sector report you're writing for the new Alpha product. Yeah. Which yeah. one you're working on now? My brain is flooded with oil and gas, uh, even more so than normal. We can uh, tell. Yeah. We can tell. Um, let's move to the bad week. Gallifrey Try. This was uh, a bit of a shocker there, really. And uh, you know, a couple of days later, uh, that would have been uh, up at the top of this uh, fallers list that we have on this page. What's happened there, Jonas? Well, Carillion's collapse has basically tarred the entire sector in the time on of fashion. And investors aren't very happy about uh, what, what's happened there. And Gallifrey Try really kind of shot themselves in the foot because last year they they put 98 million quid aside for legacy contracts, which are basically fixed-price contracts that they took out before 2014. For, for doing what exactly, sorry? Uh, for, for building things on the construction side. For gov- government-type projects? Oh, yeah, yeah, anything. Um, okay. But the, the point there is that because there's no business around and everything's flat, they do it on a fixed-price basis, and then suddenly growth kicks in, inflation kicks in, costs kick in, and suddenly margins disappear. Well, they had three of those, and they've written off 98 million quid. And then when the results came out, they said, oh, by the way, we've got another 25 million, which is related to um, the joint ventures that we were in with Carillion. And uh, we're also, it sounded like a good idea, but it wasn't, we're upping the uh, dividend cover to two times earnings, which basically means there was a dividend cut. Yeah, no one likes to see that. No, and the, the shares tanked. Crazy thing is they've they're, they're not like Carillion. I mean, they haven't got a lot of debt. Carillion had a billion; they've got about ninety million, and they've also got a very uh, vibrant Linden Homes, the house building side, which is going great guns. I think, arguably, you could say it's water under the bridge, and I'd be happy to sort of back Galliford to to do well, but. It's like everything else. If the sentiment's not there, then they're just not going to work. Yeah, so you've got the sentiment or the negative sentiment on the, uh, the kind of public sector side of things. But, but the, I mean, the house builders, there's not exactly warmth for the house building sector still, despite the fact that, as you say, Linden's been doing quite well uh, on the tip updates page. You've got an update from Bellway, which is, uh, which is very good. Yeah, I mean, they're going from strength to strength. I think a cynic could argue that... Um, with help to buy the um, the government subsidising uh, uh, people who buy houses, and that uh, promotes 
growth in the house building sector and they give it to the shareholders via special dividends. But in reality, it's a simple uh, demand and supply. Uh, we haven't got enough houses and all the house builders are building more houses each year, five, six, eight, ten percent But they'll never bridge the gap and they never have. Yeah. I mean, this is a theme that we, which also comes up in the uh, the cover feature in the residential side of uh, of that. So we'll, we'll talk about that hmm. uh, that again uh, in a minute. Um, let's uh, let's quickly turn back to the news pages, Alex, because uh, as well as having your head filled with oil and gas this week, you've uh, you've had a busy week on the mining front, uh, particularly in South Africa. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, you know, everyone will be aware of the developments in South Africa uh, this week, and uh, we just wanted to take a quick look at how that may or may not impact uh, the mining sector. The hope which seems to have, uh, uh, you know, or the the broad optimism which seems to be reflected in markets uh, this week vis-a-vis share prices of South African-facing miners is that Cyril Ramaphosa, who is expected or I think today confirmed to be the next president, uh, well, After Zuma, who is this, was essentially forced out, yeah, has he, has he has he actually accepted that he's been forced out yet? Because uh, there was a bit of toing and fro. Yes, there. right. So I think w- when we went to press, he hadn't yet. But last night, he uh, he accepted that uh, the, the ANC's decision. So um, so Cyril Ramaphosa, who uh, you know so has background in in mining, he's seen as someone who uh, may tear up a draft mining charter, which has, as it stands, it has basically left the whole sector all the unions and government at uh, a complete impasse. So a draft charter was brought in uh, last year, which had a range of measures, an extension to some of the black e- economic empowerment measures, which uh, reflect in previous charters, but additional um, rules on procurement and exploration economic empowerment, which basically meant that the mining industry is no longer going to invest in South Africa as you know, if, if that was going to be brought in. And black economic empowerment is an important part of the redress for South Africa's uh, South African society and the economy. But the danger here is in trying to uh, improve some of that situation, you end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. But the hope is here that, um, that Cyril Ramaphosa will potentially scrap this charter or come to some sort of resolution between uh, the sector and and lawmakers. Yeah, so, so we had already seen some impact uh, on uh, some of the listed miners from... What, the previous regime, Pan-African yeah. Resources being the obvious example, which has reported this week. Yeah. And they were pretty ugly results. They were ugly results. I mean, it's, it's, I suppose it's important to, to uh, separate the different themes here which are bogging down, which is which quite a fraught a sector really in South Africa. The RAND has done very, very well in, in recent months as the dollar has been slipping. Miners sell their product in dollars. They have to uh, keep their costs largely in, in rand. So that's that's left uh, some of the gold miners, including Pan-African uh, Lonmin, who are having to be taken over by Sibanya Stillwater with wafer-thin or non-existent margins. So it's already a difficult operating regime. You have quite a tense standoff between the miners and unions already. The currency issues are probably not going to go away from all of this. In fact, if sentiment returns to uh, investment in South Africa, it could be that the RAND strengthens even further, which would be arguably worse news for the likes of Pan-African. But longer term, if you look at the share prices of Anglo-American this week, um, uh, Petra Diamonds, which is in a bit of a difficult uh, situation but should be able to get past its current uh, current impasse, then you you can see a bit of sentiment returning. The idea that if... if a, a resolution will come about uh, on the on the mining charter. Then, whatever the currency fluctuations are near term, 
the mining sector should has a, has a better long you know medium to long term future. But I mean, looking at your uh, your write up of Pan African, I mean, this is this is not one of our favourites in the sector. It, I mean, it has been because it. it it's always looked very good value, and they also pay, you know, paid a good dividend. But the fortunes really have um, been on the slide for, uh, you know, pretty much since we tipped them. Unfortunately, it was it's a bit bit of a uh, falling knife situation, and uh, they have also been hit by by various issues with the mines themselves. Uh, so they're having to revise the the mine plans there. So spending money at a time when margins are already shrinking, uh, not a great time to be a Pan-African uh, shareholder. No. I mean, is this just a South African thing or is it something we need to be on the lookout for across the uh, the sector, particularly those companies exploring elsewhere or exploring and producing elsewhere in Africa? I mean, we've, we've had results from Acacia this week uh, and there's a bit of a standoff there between Acacia and the Tanzanian authorities. Yeah. Um, so in terms of mining legislation... This is this is a, a broader theme, and it's always important, you know. I think not to draw too wide a conclusion from what may be a standoff between a government in any one country and the rest of a continent. But yes, yeah, certainly we have this, uh, uh, you know, the issues in in South Africa. Uh, you know, if those are bad, what's happened to acacia mining in in Tanzania is arguably, you know, a lot lot worse. You know, we've we've written and talked a lot about what. Uh, what has happened there very very briefly um, the government last March uh, imposed a freeze on all concentrate exports uh, of gold and uh, copper I think so that basically means that Acacia can't sell uh, half of its half its production um, and then you've just had the you know the very predictable uh, working capital and cash issues that have uh, unfolded as Acacia has, has, has tried to steady itself and reduce its scale in the last year so uh, four year results you know, tip, uh, you know, predictably were were pretty dire, and they've had massive, massive impairments. If we look back to last week, Rangold also appears to be having some serious problems in the DRC, and the issue there, as it has been with Acacia and has been with South Africa, is not that the level of taxation or royalties are in and of themselves difficult. It's it's when the regime changes, it resets expectations. It means that projects which were approved two years ago no longer are going to be profitable. Uh, and it's you know for for equity investors particularly, I mean you're you're being asked to commit over a very very long term um, money where you're not going to receive return on investment for several years. I was going to say the lucky. I mean these projects do take a very long time to yeah. to, to get off the ground in the first place and, and then actually put into operation. Yeah, so, much longer than two years. Absolutely. So all the, these miners, what they really want is uh, is stability, uh, really. So which allows them to plan. Um, you know, and I, that's not to cast any aspersions or negative uh, view on any of the changes that the individual governments might want to make. You know, and the greater economic benefit they would like to see from the the extraction of resources in their country. But um, but when the goalposts shift, I mean, inevitably, it's it's very difficult for the the miners and and their their share prices as well. Indeed. I sense, uh, I sense a bigger piece coming on to look at this soon. Potentially, yeah. I'll give you a shout after this, uh, <laughs> after this podcast. Uh, and to be fair, I mean, you could say that many many companies are looking at Britain with the same kind of uh, exasperation that, mm. that there is no clarity on where we might be in two or three years' time. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> I mean, well, it's... Yeah. Well, I mean, in terms of the extractive industry in, uh, in, in the UK, I mean, I don't think there's too much to worry about that, no but, not really but but there, but there are other industries which are much more exposed to the uk and uh, real estate thank you alex is is definitely uh, one of them um so let's talk about the uh, this week's cover feature jonas you wrote about this a couple of years ago just before i think to the yes. uh, the referendum yeah already there were some nerves there were some nerves and we all sort of well i don't know perhaps i got it wrong but i got the opinion that uh, we were going to vote to stay in 
Um, I think most people did. Yeah, and, and so it came as a bit of a shock. I, I actually had a look at the, as I write my editorial, with the FTSE 350 REIT uh, index. And, yeah, the Brexit vote hit it very, very, very hard indeed. Mm. But it has recovered yeah. to, a, to a large extent, partly because, as you say in your, your feature, and I think as you, as you warned at the time, life will go on. We'll, we'll kind of get past this theory. It's reverse of looking at the fundamentals as we assess uh, the various categories of real estate. And I guess that's what we've done here. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's been more changes in real estate, which, I, you know, as you say, it's a very broad church, but there's, there's been more changes in the real estate market completely divorced from Brexit. Um, a good one is the internet, people shopping on the internet, the high streets having a bad time, applications to open new shops is fallen for year after year. And obviously, people like BHS going bust. It's a difficult market. So urban logistics, where people have warehouses to distribute goods which are ordered online, is booming, booming. And because there's been a lack of construction in the in the wake of the financial crash, there's a big supply-demand imbalance. Let's put some names to that. Companies that have exposure to the high street versus companies that have exposure to the, to the logistics. Let's look at the former. Uh, London Metric, uh, Seagrow, people like that, which are building big boxes, uh, big box, uh, Tritax big box rather, um, they're all benefiting from this, whereas um, the retailers are, they're, they're coping quite well, but the thing is the return on the big retailers um, or the, the retail mal landlords is a lot lower than elsewhere. Um, so although they're not struggling too much they're they're relatively unattractive because the returns are much much lower than in these sort of urban logistic uh, student property is another one primary health care they're the parts of the real estate sector that are really buzzing along yeah uh that, i mean that's an interesting one you mentioned there uh primary care hmm. this is this is a little subsector and you've identified a few of these in the piece you've got tourism uh, healthcare, student accommodation, and uh, self storage. Mm. But let's—I mean, let's let's talk about these because these are all these are all really hot areas. Yeah, uh, it's well. I've just just finished writing the results for primary health properties. It's an interesting statistic. The the, the wheels of government grind slowly along, but if you um, if you go to an accident emergency centre twice in a year. That costs the NHS as much as your regular visits to the doctors for a whole year. Um, so it makes sense to build primary health care centres, which are basically purpose-built buildings where you can go and get an X-ray, you can get uh, minor injuries, etc., etc., etc. There's a pharmacy there. There's somewhere for old people to go and take advice. All the things that clutter up the A and E departments will be dealt with elsewhere. So the NHS will actually save huge amounts by spending modest amounts. Probably. I mean, there is a big debate going on about NHS funding. In fact, a very prominent debate, you know, obviously some changes in, in government, or in fact, no change, because Jeremy Hunt has in fact stayed on as Health sec- Secretary, but he's taken on a new remit, which is uh, the, the social care remit. But that's part of this. But, you know, so why, why isn't it happening? You know, if, if, it, if greater efficiency, putting, spending money more effectively um, and, and taking some of the pressure off A&E, which seems to be a, a particular pain point, what, why, why isn't the money flowing into this sector? And, and is it likely to, to start flowing at some point? Well, it's, it's not really fashionable to... Uh go down this line, but private enterprise is profitable or goes bust, whereas nationalised industries just struggle on because they don't have to be accountable. 
pour another £20 billion into the National Health Service, you won't even notice a difference because it's enormous. But if you pour £20 billion into primary health clinics that, huh. that save the NHS money, then it might actually have an impact. Yeah, it make enormous difference. So there's PHP, there's uh, two others, Medics X Fund, or, and I uh, can't remember the third one. Sura. That's Sura, yeah. Uh, but between them, uh, they own uh, not many primary health care centres, and there's 8,000 GPs in England and Wales, and half of them are, you know, semi-detached houses, etc. Not fit for purpose. They need to be replaced. It's going to happen then? Oh. At some point? Yeah, yeah. The reversionary element will happen because what happens is that um, PHP and the others, their, their rents are based on the cost of new buildings and the district valuer assesses those. But the trouble is there's very few new buildings, so they can't push up rates. But when they start to possibly this year and definitely next year, um, the likes of PHP will make lots more money. Indeed. Tourism, I don't think we really need to go into much detail here. It's Shaftesbury. It's the West End. It's Chinatown. It's Carnaby Street. They own pretty much all of it, and tourists have been flocking to London like nobody's business, thanks to the the, the Wheat Pound. Yeah, the Wheat Pound, and also Crossrail is coming in, so it's going to be easier to get to. And there are a lot of people working and living around there as well, so it's vibrant. Indeed. Uh, students seem to be flocking to the UK still as well, despite warnings that that may you know, that Brexit may have put the brakes on that. I think uh, UK's num- have reported record numbers of applications this year, so good news for Unite, yep. another trend that doesn't sh- uh, show any signs of slowing. Let's talk briefly about offices, because this, I, I think, is probably the one that there's most question marks over. You know, the, the, the potential worries around an exodus of uh, certainly city institutions from uh, from the UK has, has caused some fears here. What Do we, what, do we think they're misplaced or, uh, or, or uh, do we think that uh, there's some truth in it? We should be more wary of the office sector, subsector. I think the banks are taking a pragmatic view. Two big banks have just taken um, new space in London and the amount of uh, overseas money waiting to invest in London is higher this year than it was last year. And 2017 was higher than 2016. Obviously, you know, the the exodus of banks and uh, bank workers simply hasn't happened. And the north of London, uh, the the tech belt is creeping in. Yeah, this is uh, this is Dermot London that's really benefiting from this little trend. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I, I dug up some stats uh, to, 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 to kind of reinforce this point that, um, in fact, just as we've seen record student numbers, we're seeing record amounts of in- investment, I mean, general investment flowing into to technology, uh, think, led by things like financial technology uh, into London. So a yeah. very well supported trend there as well. And also there's a, yeah, the, the demand and the supply. If you look at the, the, the crane survey in London, if you take out all the cranes revol- uh, involved in residential and then all the cranes involved in pre-let, there's only three or four left. So uh, obviously speculative development is not a good idea at the moment because because of the risk. And the big guys like British Land Land Securities have basically de-risked their development arm by ensuring it's mostly pre-let. So basically what you're saying is without there's not likely to be a huge amount of new supply coming on stream. No, in London, or in fact anywhere else in the country, um, and and so we're seeing rising rents basically. Yeah, actually, London rents are falling. Looking at the study I have here from Cush- Cushman and Wakefield, but 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 that could reverse. And elsewhere across the uh, the country, you're seeing some pretty substantial rent increases in the office space. Yeah, uh, you you go to Birmingham, Manchester, Bristol, Leeds, especially, 
And they're saying, what Brexit? We've got Chinese money queuing up to get in. We've got a shortage of offices, residential, big box warehouses. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things you mentioned in the feature is that uh, some changes to the permitted development laws in 2012, 13, I can't remember what it was exactly, um, meant that you could convert more easily offices into residential. And there was a big spate of that, which is now sort of uh, started to slow quite dramatically. Um, But actually, residential is still an interesting asset class for institutional investors and, in fact, a growing one. And there's incre- there, there will be, you allude to, more ways retail investors to play this as well. Institutions, pension funds and the like, have needed to find somewhere to park their funds and make it work. And with interest rates in decline, they've had to look at other ways. And uh, obviously, uh, buying property and collecting rent is a good idea. But obviously, the guys like Legal in general don't know how to do it. So they've recently, well, in the last couple of years conduits have been established whereby they can pre-fund construction programs and builders can build it and everyone's happy so they're getting they're getting a return and this is translating into very good business for people like telford homes watkin jones that's right yeah they go through the whole process from planning to management and each part of the process is forward funded yeah it's a win-win situation but of course, if you really want the the best returns, you have to go to Germany. Of course, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you've been you've been on top of this trend for ages uh, in the residential space. Uh, yeah. That you know the likes of Phoenix, Spree Deutschland, Summit Germany, Sirius Real Estate have all have all been doing incredibly uh, based on the shortage <clears> of the scarcity of good residential rental property in uh, in places like Berlin, in particular. Yeah, I mean they've got rent control, so basically it wasn't um, financially sensible to build new property because you wouldn't make any money um, but there's ways around it uh, refurb and now new build you can charge the market rate so there's huge demand because of what, two million immigrants coming in uh, lack of new build it's just a no-brainer still 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 as hot as it was still uh, still as attractive as it was even. i believe so yeah Excellent. yeah still got somewhere to go there Good. Uh, so, yeah, property, not the basket case that perhaps you, you may think in, uh, in, in respect of the, the, the Brexit vote. No, I think you, it pays, as always, to be selective. Some parts of it are on fire. Yeah, and definitely worth a read. You, uh, lots of good ideas in this feature. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you very much, Jonas. Let's get on the phone and talk to, uh, to Simon Thompson. Hello, Simon. How are you doing? I'm doing well, John. Um, great result for my team last night, Liverpool against Porto. Fantastic match. And um, <laughs> sw- switched on my computer screen this morning to find out one of my companies has been bid for, Stadium Group, an electronics distributor. And um, I-, I advised the readers about four weeks ago to buy in the magazine, and um, uh, the-, the bid's about 45% above that level. So um, I- actually, there's a theme developing here. So about five weeks ago, another one of my companies, Lombard's Risk Management, um, Compliance and Regulatory Software, I, I think we've talked about that one before, um, that was bid for as well. Um, so I reckon there's about 21 of my companies have been bid for in the last four years. That's, it's amazing. But I mean, presumably that's, that's kind of what you would expect when you're, you're, you yourself are on the lookout for shares that are, are essentially undervalued in relation to the, their assets and, and, and trading prospects. No, absolutely. And that's what you expect as well. Um, as uh, bull markets mature, the M&A activity actually picks up. And um, it's been a constant theme through this one over the last three, four years. So, uh, yeah, ho- hopefully the readers um, were invested in those two companies. I'm, um, sure, I'm sure a fair few of them were. 
Let's uh, let's talk about what you uh, you've got in your column this week. Four companies, pick a couple. I'll leave it to you. Um, a really interesting one is um, Cash Rich Insurance Sector Investment Company, BP Martian Partners. Um, this company over the last 27 years has grown its net asset value per share by almost 12% each year, compound annual growth rate. Um, at the end of July um, 2017, um, it was roughly £3 a share NAV. Uh, that was up 20% over the previous 12 months. I've been running through the numbers on this. They've just had a very bullish pre-closed trading update for the financial year to end January 2018. And I reckon at least £3.30 to £3.35 NAV and possibly, possibly as high as £3.50 a share. Okay. Um, the share price is £2.60, so there's a something discount. The reason I'm so confident on those um, figures, I mean, there's no um, analyst research um, with the NAV figures. Panmure Gordon's the house broker, but they, they don't actually um, do, do a forecast. Uh, but the reason I'm confident on this is I've been running through the uh, constituent companies in the portfolio. Um, NAV is about £88 million. The biggest company accounts for £26 million worth of that. That's LEBC. It's uh, IFA that's been growing at a fantastic rate over the last three, four, five years. Um, I've just got hold of the trading update from LEBC. It's unlisted, but um, I can report that its trading profit in the last financial year, and wait for this, grew 42% to £3 million, revenue up 17%, about £18 million. Well, that company was valued by BP Marsh's Valuation Committee at £42 million at the last accounts. Well, it's just done £3 million worth of trading profit. So that's basically 14 times historic trading profit is what it's um, rated on. But get this, LEBC also reports and I quote, current trading is significantly ahead of last year and budgets. It's also made an acquisition, £5 million of a Bristol-based advisory firm with roughly half a billion pounds of assets under management. And I quote again, the deal is expected to be earnings accredited in the current year. And to put the undervaluation into some perspective, LEBC is basically trading on 14 times historic trading profit. Well, Mattioli Woods, which is listed, is trading on about 20, 21 times trading profits. Mm. There's a massive gap there. So I, I think the valuation committee of um, BP Martian Partners will be giving a pretty hefty uplift to that, um, to that certain investment. The other one that they definitely will be doing the same to is Nexus Underwriting. It uh, focuses on um, the speciality managing general agency side of the insurance market. Um, that's made a number of very shrewd acquisitions, and I've got hold of its latest trading updates as well. This is for the 2017 financial year. BP Marsh owns an 18% stake in this company. Well, I, I can report that this company is going to make cash profits of £10 million from commission income of about £23.5 million, and that's from gross written premiums of about £132 million. To put that £10 million of cash profits into some perspective, that BP Marsh's last balance sheet date, it valued the whole of Nexus at £107 million. So when you actually take a, a bit of debt into, into account that Nexus has on its balance sheet, in effect, it's been valued in 12 and a half times cash profits to its enterprise value. And to put that valuation to, into perspective, Hyperion Insurance, um, which operates in this sector, sold its majority stake in CFC underwriting in a private deal to a consortium of private investors and management team. And the multiple was 
22 times cash profits. Yeah, hefty hefty discounts. Massive discounts. So when the Valuation Committee of BP Marsh actually look at these, um, which they're obviously doing at the moment ahead of the results, um, they're going to have to put in some big uplifts. And the story gets even better because the board, which have been raising the um, the dividend anyway, have just uh, declared a 26% hike in dividend per share to 4.76 pence. Um, share price is about £2.60. And it gets better because in the accounts, and I've been going through the last set of accounts, there's a £4.9 million deferred tax provision, which depresses that £88 million net asset value of BP Marsh in respect of unrealised gains and investments. But having agreed this with HMRC, the company is now entitled to substantial shareholder exemption, which basically means that £4.9 million is released because it doesn't actually have to pay tax on those gains. And that credit alone is worth 16 to 17 pence on its last reported NAV of 304 pence. I mean, I, I honestly wouldn't be surprised if BP Marsh does actually report a net asset value of £3.50, and ahead of the results, it's got to be a buy. Yeah, well, it sounds to me like it could be another one that falls on, uh, finds its way onto your takeover list, because th- those those discounts, are uh, they, they sound like pretty good value to me. Well, it's some fantastic value for money. I, I just can't see any downside to it, John. Okay. Um, the, the other one that I'm quite bullish on is Gresham House. It made it into my 2016 bargain share portfolio. The share price is roughly up 20-odd percent since then. Um, the key thing now is that um, Justin Bates, an analyst at Brokerage Liberum Capital, um, has published a note, and he believes that in the second half of last year, um, Gresham House actually hit run rate profitability. It's an asset manager. It's got forestry funds. It's got infrastructure funds. It's just bought Hazel Capital, which is renewable energy, battery storage, and including two VCTs as well. Um, I reckon pro forma, it's assets under management, which were £242 million two years ago when I included the shares in my 2016 bargain share portfolio. I reckon assets under management are now well over £630 million. And Mr. Bates at Liberum believes that as a result of that, although the company will post a small loss in the last financial year, it's on track to make pre-tax profits of roughly £800,000 on management fee income of £8.5 million this year. And those profits could double in 2009 easily, given the operational gearing effects of the company. And the story here gets even better because... Gresham House, when the new management team came into place about two and a half years ago, had some legacy assets. Well, it sold all of those off. I reckon net funds of the balance sheet, roughly £14.6 million, no doubt. Um, it also owns a stake in Gresham House Strategics, um, which is an, another investment company, and that stake is worth £6.5 million. Strip out cash and that stake from Gresham House's own market capitalisation of £50 million, and basically, you're valuing a business that's on course to, which is already turned profitable, has hit that inflection point, but could actually double profits between this year and next and quickly thereafter. You're valuing that business that's less than £30 million. Pounds. And in my book, that is just too cheap. So the share price of Gresham House is £4. Pounds. I reckon the target price is £4.60. I'm also positive on Gresham House Strategic. Um, interestingly, I've been going through its portfolio. Um, the shares basically trade on a near 30% discount to uh, net asset value. 
but it holds companies that I'm really keen on, including Might and Group, another asset manager that's done fantastically well for me, but the share price, 41 pence, is still shy of my 50 pence target price. But Gresham House Strategic also holds a stake in Challenge and Bank, PCF, which is a constituent of my 2018 bargain share portfolio. There is a crossover between the holdings it's got and some of my my holdings um, or recommendations. So I'm positive on that company as well. Yeah, sounds interesting. And uh, there's a couple more, as you've mentioned this week in the column, both actually in the uh, the sort of clean energy space, PV Crystal XO and Leaf Clean Energy. But I'll leave uh, readers to uh, to pick that up in the magazine. Thank you very much, Simon. Oh, no, you're welcome. The, way, the sun's come out today, isn't it? But it must be lovely down on the coast. Oh, it's fantastic down on the coast, and it's going to get better tomorrow, I'm told. So uh, all good for the weekend. Lucky you. Well, thank you very much, Simon. Enjoy it. OK, cheers. Just quickly talk you through what else we've got in the magazine. Uh, results are cranking up. Uh, we, we talked through a couple of them. We're uh, on about sort of four or five pages now. Definitely uh, getting up there next week before we hit peak results in late February. John Rosier has updated his private investor diary this week. Not a good month, but uh, it wasn't a good month for anybody uh, after the big sell-off last week. But uh, he explains why he is uh, relatively unconcerned by that and how investors should perhaps be thinking about these corrections when they come lots in the uh, personal finance fund section that they will talk about on their their podcast which they record tomorrow and uh, yeah lots in the uh, the, the uh, comment section as well and actually lots of news too been quite a busy week so uh, thank you for listening thank you alex and thank, thank you. you jonas and thank you danny kent simon pick up the magazine in all good news agents the property forecast the outlook for real estate in 2018 £4.90 in all good news agents or get on the website and subscribe speak soon When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.